The scripture reading is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. The Lord's word says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Joe. Please keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at these three verses, 21, 22, and 23 tonight. Uh, Let's pray. There is much we owe, Father, for all of the love that you've not only shown, but have poured into our hearts, and for every blessing that reminds us that you're in control of the world, and that as it is sustained by your Son and not running off into oblivion, but being held together by him, we give you thanks, Father, for this reminder that our very lives, our our very existence is because of your compassion and mercy and great power that is at work in all of creation in this universe. And Father, thank you for this text and for all the things it's going to teach us tonight about the gospel. And as we we think about these these wonderful words from Colossians chapter 1, what we're asking again in the name of Jesus is for you to help us Not only to to know your love, but to know at the deepest levels the meaning of the gospel. And to this end, we ask you to bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The gospel, as you know, is a much-used word in our culture, but the meaning of that word is a little confused. Some confuse the gospel with how you are to respond to the gospel. There are ways that the word gospel is used and it becomes confused with a style of preaching. uh, I had a professor in college one time talk about that very thing. He said, you know, uh, there's more to, to gospel preaching than just a style He said, man, you could get up there and kind of froth at the mouth, and he pulled his shirt out. He said, you could say, fried chicken, fried chicken, fried chicken, in a gospel preaching style, but you're not preaching the gospel. Some confuse it with truths that they want to hear. I remember uh, preaching in this very auditorium uh, nearly 15 years ago, preaching on marriage, and I made the point that nagging doesn't work. And in the silence of that moment... Somebody over here in the back of the auditorium yelled, Now that's gospel preaching. (laughs) Some confuse the word as as a philosophy of religion. The word gospel, as you know, means good news. It's it's a fact. It's an event versus a philosophy. It's, It's good news and was often associated with the good news of the birth of a king. The, the birth of Augustus Caesar, 
was, was called the gospel, the announcement of his birth. It's also the announcement of a great victory in battle. One of, one of the ways you could describe it is, is think of an ancient city. Inside the city are captives from another land, from another city, from another country who are mistreated and they're enslaved, they're exploited, they are starved, they are beaten, they are beaten down, they live in dust, they are with hope and are as good as dead. And then the news comes that a king and his army from the homeland is on his way with great power. And the great gate of the city is broken down, the army enters, and the enemy king and his army are defeated. And those captives from another land are freed, they are healed, they are fed, they are strengthened, their, their sores remedied, and then brought to their rightful home and to, right, and to their rightful place. And in the ancient world, that was gospel. That was good news. Now, I, I, I love the way that Joe read the text. I, I want us to listen to it again and to hear some words emphasized. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. A couple of verses later in the second chapter, Paul is going to write in verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. With those words bouncing around in our brain, is it surprising that Satan would try to confuse our understanding of the meaning of the word gospel? Though he has been defeated by the cross of Jesus and is no longer sovereign in our lives as a fact and as an event, he wants it to become something we're confused about. And this is not only a, a modern confusion. It's help happened elsewhere. It happened at the inception of the church. When Paul has gone off into the region of Galatia, it wasn't just the church in Colossae and the church in Ephesus and places like that that were struggling with this. Churches in the region of Galatia were as well. And so Paul writes early in his ministry, I'm astonished that you, you Galatians, are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Paul's saying when you turn to a different good news, it's not really good news. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel, the one true gospel, the one true gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. 
curse. So to follow Paul's lead in trying to clarify the gospel in a world where it is purposely confused, we ask the question, what is the gospel? Out of the text tonight that Joe read, Colossians 1, 21 through 23, there are four words we want to tackle. The first is this. The biblical answer to the question, what is the gospel, begins with a person. Not a philosophy, but a person. It is the person of Jesus. The gospel begins and ends with the person of Jesus. Think of Philip. Remember Philip, one of the first deacons in the church? He's a Christian. He is an evangelist. He is someone that was, that was uh, hand-chosen by the people in Jerusalem to handle a problem along with some other men that threatened to split the church. He is an exceptional disciple of Jesus. And as you know, on the road to Gaza, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The Spirit sends him there to the very road that the eunuch is traveling. And Philip sees this chariot traveling on. He starts running beside it. He notices that the guy that's in there reading is reading Torah. He is, or he's reading the prophets. He is reading the Old Testament scriptures. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And as he's running along, he realizes, I need to ask this, this guy if he understands what it is that he's reading. And the eunuch has been reading Isaiah chapter 53. It's sort of a, a difficult thing to understand unless somebody explains it to you in light of the events that had happened in Jerusalem and all of, of Galilee and Israel with, with, the, with the birth of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he gets into the chariot, and in verse 35, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, Isaiah 53, and told him the good news or gospel about a person, Jesus. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you is of first importance that Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The Gospel begins and ends not with an argument, but with a person. The Gospel is about the life that was lived by Jesus and the mission that was physically and literally and historically accomplished by the person known as Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. But it's also about alienation and antagonism. It's about alienation and antagonism. Uh, one of my favorite books on preaching is by a, a fellow by the name of Frederick Beekner from uh, the East Coast. In a book called Telling the Truth, he says over and over and over again that the good news has to be bad news before it can become good news. That the gospel has to be bad news before it's good news. The bad news is that we are sinners which separates us from God. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul writes to this church that's struggling with whether or not 
Christ is sufficient and supreme in all things, that He's sufficient to bring them all the way to God. He writes in verse 21, Once you, you Colossians, were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviors. The beginning point of the good news being good news is, the, that, the bad, it, it's, is that there's bad news that we are not in God's kingdom because we have become, number one, aliens. We're, we're no longer from God's land. We're no longer from the place where, where, where God is, is recognized as the king. We are aliens living outside of that kingdom. That's what it means to be a human being, even in the 21st century. And think about what it means to be an alien. It means that you are a citizen elsewhere trying to find a home in a place that is foreign to you. You don't have right of entry. You don't have right to work. You don't have right to live unless someone intervenes on your behalf and opens the door to that kingdom and to that land. But in that text, it says that we're not only outside of God's kingdom because God's not ruling in our hearts, but that we are also enemies. Philosopher David Thoreau was once asked if he had made his peace with God. And he said, I didn't know that we were in a quarrel. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him, this person, this Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by me making peace through his, that person, Jesus, the Messiah's blood, shed on the cross. You know, the funny thing about being a human in, in just about every century is that no one ever really thinks of themselves as being aliens or enemies of God when it comes to heaven. No one says, you know what? If you were to ask me right now if I was going to heaven or to hell, I would say hell. Nobody, unless they were completely antagonistic towards Christianity and proclaimed atheists, would say something like that. But that would be just an argument against the Christian faith. It wouldn't be what that person really thinks is going to happen to them. Or they might say that God is love, and how could he not love me because I'm so lovable? Or I've lived a good life, which usually means I've not intentionally hurt anyone, or I'm going to heaven because I've done a lot of good things. And there is something about what you do that has some effect in the kingdom, but this is how it's described by the great prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64. He says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We will all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The good news has to be bad news before it's good news. The recognition that the fact that I may consider myself a good person, or I might do some good things, or that I'm lovable and God is love and therefore He must love me, when you come to the realization that the reality of our relationship to God is described by Paul as alienation and antagonism, we are enemies of God, that's where the gospel then begins to turn. 
and we go from a person that it's about Jesus the Messiah and the fact that his mission involves the people of God's creation, human beings who are alienated from him and are enemies of him, to him, to reconciliation. That's where it turns. In verse 22, but now, those of you who are alienated and enemies of God because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Do you know what that means? Without blemish and free from accusation. The Messiah did not come to try to change God's mind about us. The Messiah came to reveal how God has always felt about his human creatures. What did God do when human beings like us killed his son? When the Romans and the Jewish nation, Gentiles and Jewish people put the Son of God on a cross, what did God do? Did he destroy the world because the level of alienation and antagonism between God had, and man had reached the epic, epic proportions of, of Genesis chapter 6? Where every thought and inclination, God is thinking to himself, of man, every thought and inclination in the heart of man is, is evil from birth. And God is grieved because he has created man. Or did he send his angels to scorch and burn the earth. What happened was that our putting His Son on the cross became the means for reconciliation. We who are aliens and we who are enemies to God, through the death, the very act of trying to kill the Messiah, actually perform the act that led to reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians and Colossians have so many points of intersection, but Paul has this prayer in Ephesians 3 that is just unbelievable. He says, I pray that you, you Ephesians, being rooted and established in love, may have power, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What Paul is praying for is something pretty phenomenal. What he's telling us in those verses is that God loves us more than we could ever understand if we lived a thousand years and had an IQ of 185. He's saying that we can't even get close to understanding that love, which is only partly revealed in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that we can't even get close, only partly close, unless we pray for God to help us to understand it. 
What Jesus is doing is revealing that there is a God whose love is unfathomable, and it's unfathomable for human beings who are alienated from God and separated from God because of their sin, and even enemies of God in the way that they think about God. The death of God's Son on the cross was not plan B, but it was an act of love because reconciliation demands sacrifice. You ever thought, well, have you ever thought about forgiveness? And, and what it really means to truly and deeply and profoundly forgive someone? You know, the fact is, you're not saved because you follow the teachings of Jesus. You are saved because the blood of Christ was shed for you. The death of Jesus was not just violent, it was sacrificial. And when you forgive, as justice will demand, forgiveness always demands that someone suffers. You know, somebody hurts you, says something about you, maybe physically hurts you, economically, financially hurts you, emotionally hurts you. What is it that when that person has caused you some pain, what is it that you want to do? You want to strike back. You want to get a pound of flesh from that person, really make them pay for the injury to you or the injury that they have inflicted and, and perpetrated on your loved one. You want to make them pay. But when you forgive, what you're saying is that whatever it is that is a debt that is owed to you is being removed from the spreadsheet. When you forgive someone, you are the one who suffers. When you forgive, you're the one who has the pain because the pound of flesh they owe you has been removed from the spreadsheet of personal injury. That's why when something sort of catastrophic, and that may be too strong of a word, but when something really bad happens in somebody's life and they are in pain because of what somebody else has done to them and they just sort of flippantly, and I don't mean that in, in an in insulting way, but they just sort of flippantly just automatically go, I, I forgive them. I don't know if they've really forgive, forgiven them. Because the process of forgiveness involves you suffering instead of them. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And Jesus died the death that we should have died. He took our sin so that we could get His righteousness. Why? He suffered for reconciliation. He could have punished us. We're guilty. We're alienated. We're antagonistic towards God. Enemies of God in the behaviors and the thinking of our mind. Enemies of God. So He suffered in order for us to be reconciled. The goal of salvation is not merely forgiveness. The goal of, of salvation is not merely forgiveness, but it's reconciliation with God. The goal of forgiveness for, was for human beings who are alienated and antagonistic to God to be able to be presented to God, as chapter 1 verse 22 says, holy and without blemish and free from accusation. And then the last thing we'll say, and we're going to kind of continue this uh, next time as well, but it's all-inclusive. 
The gospel is about the person of Jesus. It's about alienation and antagonism from God or towards God from his human creation. But it's also about reconciliation through the cross of Jesus and the forgiveness that was brought to us and reconciliation to God because of his sacrifice and him suffering, not us. But it's also, last word, all-inclusive. You, you know, one of the things that the Bible just teaches over and over again, and something that all of us believe, is that there is a life that's after this life. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, the last verse of this particular text, Paul says, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I think there are a couple of ways to know if a church has the message, the true message of the gospel, understands the true gospel and have embraced it. The first is they share the gospel in their own community. And secondly, they send missionaries all around the world. Why? Because that church wants everyone to know what we're going to be talking about next time. And that is the reconciliation of humans that leads to what he's going to say at the end of this chapter that leads to the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Why else would Paul put himself at such risk? Why would, would Paul go through all of the hardships for something that wasn't really very exciting and certainly not life-changing? But what Paul saw in the Gospel when he understood that all of his legalism, Pharisee of Pharisees, trained by Gamaliel in the rabbinics of the day by the greatest of the teachers, when he saw that they were filthy rags, that he, in all of his attempts to do God's will, was so misunderstood and so misguided and so warped that he was even participating in the very destruction of the kingdom that God was reestablishing in the hearts of men because of Jesus, that he had been a part of murder, that he had been a part of lynching, and not only just there witnessing it and not feeling guilt because you know, he didn't step in and try to do something, but he was there giving his approval. He was saying, guys, I'll hold the coats. That's, you know, let's not get this dirtier than it has to be for you. Pick up the rocks. I'll hold the coats. He's getting a letter. He's convincing the leaders in Jerusalem to give him a letter so that he can go to Damascus and wipe out the church there. Women and children, not just the guys, but the women and the children too, to throw all of them into prison. And on that road, he sees the light, not just spiritually and figuratively, but he literally sees the light. And he realizes that the one speaking to him in the light is the Lord Jesus, of whom the gospel begins and ends with. And in that moment... Knowing what he was doing, do you not think that he felt, as he would write to Timothy, who was in Ephesus later on, that he was absolutely and completely, utterly, profoundly alienated from God? 
And not only that, God's enemy. Because he was trying to kill the very thing that God was establishing through Jesus. Taken to Damascus, he's blind. He's not able to see anything, and that's a grace because he's forced to think, think, think. Finally, after a couple of days, taken to that Ananias who tells him the truth about what it is that God is doing through the Christ. And knowing that he was not only being forgiven, but that he was being, he was being forgiven at the great cost of God himself in love to allow Jesus to die for our sins so that we could get his righteousness. So that we were not just forgiven, that Paul was just going to be forgiven and God would say, okay, we're going to let things be, you know, let bygones be bygones, but, you know, you go your way, I'll go my way. But for God, through the act of the death of Jesus on that cross, to reconcile a guy like Paul to something that he was allowed to see but not allowed to speak about, a glory, a glory that he hints about, but a glory of forgiveness and reconciliation and glory. That he was willing, just willing to go anywhere. God said, Paul, I want you to live in a cardboard box. He was going to do it because he had seen it. And not only seen it, but felt it and had experienced it. What it means to know that you are alienated and an enemy of God, but that God's love, which he'll later tell the Ephesians, you've got to pray hard that God will bless you with a certain kind of a power that will help you to understand just how great that love is. Knowing that love and knowing that he was being reconciled to God, it would be okay for Paul to live in a cardboard box in order to share with people. Can you imagine the beauty that Paul was beginning to see because of the gospel? That he was willing to go to anybody and everybody, people that would throw stones at him and people that would jeer at him and mock him and spit at him and throw him in jail. He would still share that gospel. It was so beautiful. It was so beautiful that it overcame all of the hate that came towards him. And in a manner of speaking, he was emulating what God had done for us in Christ. That there's something so beautiful that God wants to share with His human creation. That even though we hate Him and we're His enemies and we try to go away from Him and deny that He exists, He loves us so profoundly and utterly and deeply and greatly that His Son could die to pay our sins in order for Christ to be in us and us to be in Christ. The hope of glory. And that's how you know, folks. That's how you know that the gospel has become deeply understood and embedded not just in our hearts, 
but in our souls. Jesus, that's where it begins and ends with the Christ, the Messiah. Born in Bethlehem, grew up in a place where nothing good can come. And lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should die. Hope of glory, to be reconciled to God, even people like us. Jeff's going to sing, lead us in a song right now. And uh, this is an opportunity for us to think deeply about what it is that God has accomplished in your life and in my life because of the gospel. And to praise Him, and to praise Him, and to praise Him. But at the same time, to do something. To do something. To make it right with God through coming and the confession of that sin and repenting because you recognize what it's all about. Because you understand the gospel is about someone coming with a great army to rescue you from a kingdom where you're held captive and beaten into the dust and without hope and as good as dead in your sins. And if you would like to know how that can change for you tonight or if there's some other need that we need to be praying about, whatever it is, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk with them as we stand and praise God together.